This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel Ben-Koren. This week we interviewed the journalist and former economics editor at BBC Newsnight, Paul Mason. Daniel, what was the conversation about? So for this podcast, as you say, we had Paul Mason. He's an economics journalist and he has a book out called Clear Bright Future, A Radical Defense of the Human Being. And Paul Mason is a really influential voice in left-wing circles. In this book, he outlines his utopian vision for humankind and how we're going to get there. And he was interviewed by Jesse Norman, who's a conservative MP, comes from a completely different side of the political spectrum. And we hope you enjoy listening. Just before we go to this week's episode, if you're interested in coming to any of the Intelligence Squared events that happen live in London, go on our website at intelligencesquared.com and we can offer you a special 20% discount. Just type in the promo code podcast at the checkout. We've got an event on the 29th of August in Houston with Salman Rushdie, which is going to be really interesting. So check it out on our website. Hope to see you there. Hello, I'm Jesse Norman. I'm the Member of Parliament for Hereford and South Herefordshire and the author of books on Edmund Burke and Adam Smith. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here today with Paul Mason, journalist and author of Clear Bright Future, a radical defence of the human being. Welcome, Paul. It's great to be here. Now, Paul, fascinating book, very controversial and interesting just because we've got a wide audience, can you give us the central thrust in a couple of minutes? Yes, I mean, Western society is in trouble. We've got an economic system that no longer works for most people. A lot of people asking, how does my child have a better life than I do? And there's not much of an answer. As a result, we've seen in the USA, in Britain, in Brazil and beyond, the evaporation of consent for democracy, for the rule of law, I would argue, and for universal human rights. Now, alongside these two things, there is a third crisis, I think, and it, and it is one that I call the, the threat of algorithmic control. To me, big tech, the things that Facebook, Cambridge Analytica are alleged to have got up to, for example, in the 2016 American presidential election and here in Britain during Brexit, are just the thin end of a, a, a rather large wedge that we're going to see in the 21st century, whereby elites are going to try and use big data and, and, and artificial intelligence to control human thought and behavior. Now, when I, I, I'm, a, I'm a reporter, and I've been reporting the economic crisis since, you know, since standing outside Lehman Brothers uh, in New York on the day it closed, uh, and, and seen it, this crisis morph into a social crisis, uh, and an attack on truth, an attack on the, on the possibility of truth. And now the global system seems to be breaking up, 
uh, the elites are no longer happy with the multilateral kind of power sharing system. And as I watched this happen, what occurred to me was, I think this is a crisis of the kind of self we created during those 30 years of the high point of free market economics. And so I call it in the book, the crisis of the neoliberal system turns into a crisis of the neoliberal self. And so when I get into the answers phase, I don't think, although I, you know, the book is full of political questions and answers, the ultimate questions and answers that I am interested in are what kind of human beings are we trying to defend? What kind of human being can defend themselves in an era of autocratic elites, oligarchic control, and faced with machines that are infinitely more powerful than they are? How fascinating. So, Paul, if I get this, your view is one that springs out of a Marxist intellectual tradition in some respects, but the diagnosis is by no means just about the right or the centre-right. It's a, it's a, it's a much wider-ranging analysis. Well, since you've used the M-word, let's go straight at it. Well, well this is Intelligence Squared. Yeah. I think we should go straight to it. Why not? Well, on the 200th anniversary of Marx's uh, birth, I was in Berlin for the celebration of it. I gave a, a, a lecture at, at the Rosa Luxemburg Institute. And a lot of the talk around that time was, will this now become a historic question, Marxism? Well, you know, not long before that, the, the, the far-right marched through Charlottesville. Um, and what they said, you know, as they chanted, Jews will not replace us, is that Charlottesville as a town had become overwhelmed by cultural Marxism because of its university. Uh, this allegation of cultural Marxism is, is of course, there in, in the manifesto of nearly every mass killer, the, the one in uh, Norway, Breivik in 2011, the one in Christchurch this year. It's always there. It was... Um, the, the Trump advisor, Rich Higgins, uh, put a three-page memo, which has since been published, on Trump's desk saying, you, President, are at war with cultural Marxism. Now, I'm not a cultural Marxist. I, am a, I, I would call myself a, a Marxist Marxist. And, I mean, what is a cultural well, Marxist? For, look, for the far right and for the authoritarian right, cultural Marxism means political correctness. And it, they see it as a, as a conspiracy by the left that goes like this, because the working class failed to overthrow capitalism, we have to undermine it with, from within through political correctness. So lesbian and gay rights, feminism, uh, the civil rights movement, etc. in the United States. That's what, that's what they say. I am a Marxist who wants to transcend capitalism. I want a long, slow, but decisive move beyond the market economy. And my last book, Post-Capitalism, was an attempt to explain how that might happen on the basis of information technology and its effects on the society around us. In this book, I'm really trying to say, yes, look, I'm of the left. And for me, the left uh, in the English-speaking world is much wider than the socialist tradition I come from, the Labour. It is, it is, incredibly uh, polarised around climate change at the moment. I, I think everyone who wants urgent and decisive action against the carbon lobby deserves it in some way to be to be seen as left. Um, I think, uh, and by that I mean decarbonisation completely of the society. Um, and we now have, for reasons I explore in the book, attacks on rights we thought were fairly universal and fundamental, uh, like women's right to abortion, which are, it's always constrained in, in, in society, but never under such fundamental threat as it is today. I think the left I want to, as it were, refound 
and this book is a contribution to that, is one dedicated to the defence of human agency in the face of autonomous machines, whether these be artificial intelligences or indeed states. Because, as was reminded recently, um, Hobbes's Leviathan was a machine. It was an artificial man, as, as Hobbes says. And I think we're, we're, we're facing autonomous systems that we don't know how to combat or defend ourselves against because we see everything in terms of politics and not enough in terms of who is the human being, on what basis do they claim rights, and on what basis do they claim uh, moral action. Okay, so there's a fascinating set of contradictions or tensions in there. Let's just explore them for a second. Obviously, many conservatives would contest the idea that to be caring about decarbonisation makes you a person of the left. I mean, what is conservatism? It isn't seeking to conserve the natural environment, the natural inheritance that we as a society have had, not necessarily something you see everywhere in the same way that you don't see any great care for the environment in uh, communism or communist society. That's true too. So, So that's very interesting. The other thing that's interesting is that in a way what you're saying is kind of an attack on the left because it's trying to get beyond the current uh, bromides of cultural Marxism and that kind of miniaturized class analysis towards a wider view. And it's also, if I've understood you, accepting that for all the bigots and racists you can find on the right, you can find their analogues on the left as well. I wouldn't necessarily accept that. Let's come back to climate change, but look at the, 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 the problem of, for me, the central problem of agency and the defense of a radical humanism it is true and the closer you get to the university system the more you find this that since the rise of postmodernism in the late 1970s almost the default ideology of left academia is anti-humanist the philosopher michel Foucault. very interesting well the philosopher michel Foucault says uh, in his famous college de france lectures uh, man is uh, an invention of a recent date and would soon be wiped away from history. I'm remembering the quote, like a, a human face drawn in the sand as the tide comes in. Now, in a, though I disagree with that, you know, Foucault also believed that humanity is a socially constructed concept. I believe humanity is a biologically verifiable scientific concept. We have, our DNA makes us very special animals. We are imagineers, we are cooperators, we are linguists. So in that sense, in a way, you're almost Aristotelian or Smithian. You kind of see human beings as naturally sociable, linking animals. I'm certainly Aristotelian. I, I certainly think that Marx himself mm. was an Aristotelian. Uh, Marx, of course, laughed at the term moral philosophy. He literally laughed out loud. Mm. And the argument, of course, was what does Nancy and Oliver Twist have to do with morals when she's the slave of, of, a, of an organised criminal? And it's the same message you get in Les Miserables. You know, what, what, does, what does Fantine care of morals? That was, I think, a laudable uh, critique of, of moral philosophy. But the interesting thing is that Marx in, said to the working class, you formed yourself as a class... No, you need to form yourself as a class for yourselves. That it's actually, I don't know whether it was a direct quote from, um, from I think it's the Jewish uh, um, prophet Hillel, uh, who says, um, if, we are not, if we are not for ourselves, you know, who are we? But, but the, the question of, of class consciousness becoming for yourselves as, a, as an agent of history involved 
in my experience, and I come from a long sort of line of, of, of working class miners and cotton spinners in Lancashire, they created a morality of their own. They always ignored Marxists, in fact, um, when Marxists said moral philosophy is bullshit. Um, and I think that we, the, the agents of the 21st century, the agents of change, we have to have a moral philosophical project as well as a political one. Right. So someone could disagree with many of the things you say in the book, potentially, Paul, but uh, your view is that they would find themselves agreeing with the need for an articulate underlying moral philosophical position. And in a way, it's, a, I think, a fair critique of Marx that in writing out the claims of moral philosophy, what he's really doing is exercising his own prejudices in different ways yeah. and, and failing to acknowledge that actually everyone has a moral viewpoint, whether they recognize it or not, and that it might be part of a genuine process of uh, enlightened social change to start to become explicitly aware of what those presuppositions okay. were and what you shared morally with each other. Yeah. That would be a very well, I, Aristotelian, Smithian it, view. It would, and I think that the reason Marx doesn't do that is because, in a way, the Marxist program became a moral philosophy for the whole humanity and not for the human subject. If you think about it like this, um, the not only Marx, but I mean, whether or not Marx wrote it, I, I believe, in, I, I have a teleological view of human nature. Uh, and he's not the only one. Uh, the the Judeo-Christian, Judeo indeed, the, the Islamo-Judeo-Christian enlightenment has a teleological view of who humans are. And for me, it goes like this. We're, we're born as linguists, cooperators and technologists. Therefore, it's not inevitable, but I think it's a fair chance that since we've, we took 300,000 years to go from stone tools to steam trains and 200 from street steam trains to, to silicon chips four nanometers thick, it's quite likely that we can liberate ourselves. Here on earth, in, you know, I'm, I'm a secularist, I'm an atheist, here on earth we can achieve a good society abundance and human self-emancipation. But isn't there an obvious objection to that, uh, Paul, which is that, yes, of course, we can make technological change and in some respects, industrial and economic change partly based on that. But that's not really going to the question of what our moral and social expectations are of each other, what our ethos is, how we yep. actually interact with each other. And I thought your view was, in a way, more radical. It was that that's the target. That's the thing we've got to re-engage with. Well, it, we certainly have to, but for, the reason, but for this reason, that, that there are the, the attacks on humanism are coming, first of all, from a new right that is overtly biologically hierarchical. So the alt-right in America, you know, the classic guy in, on, his, on his Xbox gaming station fantasizing of, uh, about shooting cultural Marxists, is, believes that alpha males should be higher in the pecking order than beta males, and that what's wrong with the world is that women are higher in the pecking order than beta males. But isn't, but isn't your position also a biological one? You've just specified what the biological way in which you see human beings. I do. No, it is. Uh, but I think my one is, is scientifically sustainable in the sense that I don't think any science controverts the idea that humans are a species that, all by, you know, albeit in gradations, is different. Uh, that species is different as far as we know, to every other species because it has a social history. Yeah, but say there is, say there were science that contradicted with one of your most cherished beliefs about the status of women or people from other races and uh, white Caucasians, etc. What would your view okay. be of that? Where, where, are you, where are you going? Well, are you going to back human rights or are you going to back the theological demands of a scientific viewpoint? Well, I would say, 
first of all, let's let's see the science because, uh, as your listeners know, this is not a theoretical, this is not a hypothetical question. Uh, race science, as it is called, is is it currently attempting to invade the university here in the UK and, of course, in the United States. Mm. Um, I don't see any of its claims as as scientific, but they must be refuted as as on the scientific basis and on the the, the, the famous kind of. Popperian principle that any idea has to be refutable in its own its own right. I would say that, of course, let's let's see the science and and see what is what is said. But, but if the academy is intrinsically anti-humanist, as you've described it, why think it's in any position to do that? No, Isn't it really just against the whole viewpoint you're no, trying no, to espouse? I think it's the it's the humanities academy that has that has become anti-humanist. Uh, and look what's happened. You know, f- uh, one of the postmodernist authors I quote in the book, Rosie Braidotti, who's written a book called The Post-Human. She's, she's fairly clear and admits that, that postmodernism was going nowhere. It produced very little by, the, by way of operational knowledge, which is what universities are now in the business of. And she concludes that, you know, there was needed to be a turn away from the sort of fragmentation of knowledge that postmodernism encouraged towards a new single theory. And for them, it is Post-humanism. So, what is post critical post-humanism? Is in the university context, it is the the idea that me and you are already beyond human because the level of technological control being exerted on us and the loss of agency after thirty years of, of right-wing economics is so great that we are more or less closer to, or actually, zombies than people. That's the post-humanism thesis, and I wanted to combat that. I, I, and, and would, and just for, for clarity's sake, would the post-human thesis have a similar problem with communist economics? Would it regard a communist economics as leading to a passive, uh, often industrialized conception of a human being, which denies their agency and robs them of their humanity? I, I wouldn't know, but it would be logical for them to do so, and, yes. and, and because. If you think about it, I, I, in phasing, I mean, I, I turned up and I described this in the book in, in Yeltsin's Russia, you know, three weeks after Yeltsin came to power, 2000% inflation, um, people selling single boots and pans on the street. I mean, it's clear to me theoretically, but I never experienced it because you couldn't get there as a, as a leftist before, before the fall of Gorbachev. Uh, I, it was clear to me that, that Soviet communism had atomized civil society and that on top of that, then the, ex- the thrilling but you know, utterly uh, atomizing experience of a rapid market transition in which you know, you, the, the living standards collapse, um, the one thing on top of the other certainly robbed people practically of agency. But if, if, we, if we go yes, back... and gave the wrong people so much agency, they were able to hoover up yeah, I mean, a people lot of were, assets people into were great print- oligarchic fortunes. People were printing fake ownership documents for entire oil refineries on their home computers and registering them with the authorities. I mean, however, the, the, the question you ask is, OK, well, po- what's wrong? Well, the implicit question, what is wrong with post-humanism? It is, it is a, it, it first of all rests on the idea that, 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 that the things that are walking around the planet that look like human beings have lost something fundamental uh, compared to the past because of technological change. Um, and is that, that's a view you agree with? No, no, I absolutely disagree with it. So and, technology hasn't disabled people? Well, no, I think it, technology is certainly handing elites and states high levels of, of technological control over us right now. And the recent history of this has almost not been written because it can't be. Until I can see the the, the accounts and the inside 
dope, as it were, from Facebook, Google, Amazon, Tencent and Alibaba, the two Chinese companies. I can't understand at what point in recent history we began to respond effectively to the control mechanisms and algorithms that have been deployed against us. But it must have happened. However, I see this as reversible. And therefore, to, to me, I, the question I want the readers to answer is, on what if you if you do want to resist Facebook's control and Google's control over your life and Tencent and Alibaba and the Chinese government, on what basis? On what basis do you, claim, as a human being, claim the right to control a machine? Because left academia has spent 30 years laying the basis for, for removing that control. And at the same time, the new right, the neo-reactionary movement, uh, is removing the universalism within uh, politics, the politics of, of human rights. And and not just of rights, but of status. There is a very clear push to reduce certain parts of the human race to subordinate status. In the and, and this is this is no longer as this is no longer an untheorized impulse of the American far right. It is theorized and has been done. Uh, and you know, since the mid two thousands, the so called neo reactionary movement have been, I believe, putting back into place the thought architecture of fascism. And again, if you're going to fight it on the basis of, of radical humanism, you must define what the human being is, what its teleological purpose is. And the left is very scared of that because what it means practically for me walking into a university and having people say, you're Eurocentric, uh, humanism is imperialist, humanism is white colonialism. Uh, all these things are, are routinely and without thought thrown at those of us on the left who do want to defend the radical humanism of Marx. OK, on that highly pregnant and interesting note, we're going to take a brief break, ladies and gentlemen. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Okay, we're now back with the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Jesse Norman, and I'm here with uh, Paul Mason, author of Clear Bright Future, A Radical Defense of the Human Being. Now, Paul, that was a very interesting summary of your, as it were, reaction to current trends uh, in the universities and linking them in strange and exciting ways with what you think is happening on the far right and uh, one expects, in some respects, on certain parts of the left of politics in Britain and in America. Um, there's a natural response, though, to that, and perhaps I can just mm. uh, lay it out a little bit, which is that actually, in quite a deep way, what both of these arguments from either side of the equation are missing is, and I'm going to put it right out there, the C word, is a kind of intelligent, small C conservatism. And what I mean by that is a, 
a, a recognition of the limits of markets as uh, cultural entities as mediated by trust and norms as well as by economic incentives pushing back against what you might call neoliberal, which I don't take to be conservative views of economics particularly at all, uh, and at the same time pushing back on this uh, routinized and mechanized, mechanized conception of a human being in favor of something that actually recognizes uh, the equality of all people in a society and uh, I think pushes them in, I'm frank to say, a quite an Adam Smithian way towards um, a greater feeling of empowerment wherever you are in the society. And the reason I say that is because I think there's something in what you've said that's very interesting, which is where what is our view of the agent? What is our view of the mm. individual? And uh, of course, this conservative view that I'm describing is very much one that doesn't allow this easy fallback into a atomized, desiccated conception of um, the person implied by a radical individualism. In fact, it kind of insists on them being embedded in society and embedded institutions. And it's that that creates a really interesting overlap with some of the more small-c conservative sections of the British left. And yep. I'm thinking of people like the Blue Labour movement yep. as well. And I take it there's quite a lot of overlap in some respects with what you're thinking. There certainly isn't. There's not overlap between me and, and Blue Labour or, or indeed, say, Blue Dog Democrats, for, for definitely not. Uh, for me, the transformation projects I want to see alongside economic transformation and climate uh, justice, I want to see the flourishing of a diverse human uh, experience. So for me, lesbian and gay rights, transgender rights are positive. Uh, the equality- well, I don't think any of those people would deny that. I think Blue Labour and certainly uh, Smithian Conservatives would be very against the idea that that some, isn't Some positive- of the key people in the Blue Labour movement here in Britain exempt the T out of LBGTQ. They're for it all except for transgender rights. Oh, but, really? but let, okay. that's their, Sorry, issue. That's that, their issue, but not mine. Sure. Okay. But just to be clear, you, you, is the contrast not just one of scope, but also one of transformational? I mean, yours is a radical view. You want to really move things ahead incredibly well, quickly. Because I think we, we, we need to decarbonize the world in 10 years. Um, well, half, you know, half carbon uh, uh, emissions in 10 years. We have an economic system that is stagnating and worse, the long-term, long-term sources of growth in, West, in developed world societies are quite low, predicted to be quite low in terms of future productivity, future, uh, future achievements at, at the, at the, and, at and the do edge. Do you think, just picking on yep. decarbonization, do you think markets are irrelevant decarbonization? Do you think they're central to it? What's the relationship between you and the market in that? If okay. you're rejecting the market, presumably it's quite hard to decarbonize Look, without them. No, I, th- I think, f- first of all, my, my long-term project of transition, which I've reiterated in this book, mm. it, w- which it has the label post-capitalism, is about unleashing the, the power of, 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 of information technology to create utility where it doesn't create exchange value. Uh, that is, it doesn't create market gener- generable and realizable wealth, but it creates massive utility. That, I, I, so it, can we just have an example to make that specific for okay, so an then, audience? The, 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 the cost of production of a music track is zero. Its price should be close to zero. It should reflect the cost of... Sorry, the reproduction cost of a music track is, is zero. Uh, it, its price should reflect the, the, uh, the very small amounts of, of output uh, in an outlay in terms of the production of the track... Um, but the reason and, and in a Masonic world, how do you make sure that happens and is passed back? Well, you to break them? up big tech. You break up the huge monopolies whose only 
purpose is to place a price on something that should be free. That's the new purpose of the monopoly. It's not so much as to, to suppress innovation. It's to, uh, although there is some innovation suppression going on, when you see people like Facebook... Oh, know, there's, there's no doubt about that at all. ...gobbling up I- I Instagram no, and WhatsApp. But, it, but... And also, I think one can take the analysis slightly further, and I'm going to slightly blow my, yeah. my own trumpet here as well, if I may, because in the new edition of my book on Smith, I specifically look at what a Smithian competition policy yep. would look like of breaking up um, some of the big uh, tech platforms potentially or forcing them to publish information on via APIs which would allow robotic intelligence to be placed at the, at the hands of the individual. Yep. Things I think would yep. probably be quite suitable from your point of view. Well, well I... Good, but you know something that you said earlier. Let, let's go, let's go back to it. You sure. distanced conservatism from neoliberalism. Yes. For me, neoliberalism is the coercive imposition of market norms of behaviour, not necessarily markets, into all aspects of, of economic life. Yes, and but and, there are plenty of people of a conservative disposition who would accept that. I mean, a Michael Sandel, yeah, of course, you know, would yep. be the first to say that market norms have pervaded large chunks of society. And and. and what I want to do is to drive them out. Yes. Uh, that, that is my project. Now, the way to do it is to unleash the, as the example I used, break up big tech for why, for me, for the left, in order to collapse the, to collapse the monopoly profit um, and to encourage, of course, innovation so that one of the big tech companies behind the 10 replacements, the baby Facebooks, sure. could be offering me uh, no advertising. Right. So, but actually what you're saying then, this is really interesting, this isn't actually anti-capitalist in a way it's pro-market uh, it's it, saying we want markets to work better by having more competition that's only half of it which okay B- because because in addition I, I i also think that there is a there is a a market correcting thing that needs to be done on rent seeking i think so much of modern capitalism is rent seeking behavior whether it's the speculative builders well, in we're the, in agreement yeah, okay a lot of that no it's a lot of rent seeking. So and you see it, of course, in American politics, you know, where the return on a dollar of lobbying money is 200 times. Yes. And, and you know, we have a new party here in Britain, the Brexit Party, um, currently scoring 30 percent in the polls. It's quite Trumpian. But if you look at the figures, the actual figures who've clawed their way into these safe European Parliament seats for them, many of them are in the extractive industries or property speculation. And I think that that what we're up against here and what explains Trump to me, there's a chapter in the book called A General Theory of Trump, where I try to look at the sectoral uh, elites who have actually backed Trump and and people like Trump. It is people trying to defend fossil fuel extraction and um, speculative building and rent-seeking business models. Uber is a good example. No, this... uh, I no. I think the difference might be between me and you sure. that you are a member of parliament for a party that has, in general, over the last twenty or thirty years, not been so keen on doing that. It's been it's been I would say strong in some areas and weak on others. There hasn't yep. been enough focus on crony capitalism. Yep. There hasn't been enough focus on effective competition. And uh, I'm not sure there's been enough focus on rent-seeking and uh, addressing think, that. And I think that's a common ground. In I, some I, I think, yeah, and, and for, for me, that this will be a decisive thing. I am a member of Corbyn's Labour Party, and we really do want to go 
for the jugular of the rent seekers and the big tech. I mean, this is, this is an emerging theme for us. But yes, where, you will find that, of course, rent yeah. seeking reestablishes itself through the political lobbying of, course, of the yeah. unions in a Corbyn government. Well, that, I'm not sure how effective they're going to be, but let, but let's 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 accept that's a, a possibility. The other part of my analysis is where I will diverge from. I think you and your uh, small C conservative. Uh, Smithy, I hope you will. Smith, and, and that is, first of all, um, my aim is to transcend a market-based economy. I want an economy based on abundance. A short summary is for me: tech, big tech, sorry, information technology makes utopian socialism possible. I want a a long transition to to a much larger larger sector of co-ops. Uh, of mutuals, of non-profit banks, or the concomitant for that for me is large-scale provision of universal basic services, so city transport systems being free at the point of use, for example. And when it comes to climate change, which is where your question began, mm. I, I, I think we are, we are hubristic to think that a 4 billion-year-old planet can be saved by a 25-year-old economic system. Um, it, the, the, or, or even possibly by a... 10-year program of radical decarbonization, which you're pushing. It, 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 I, we've got to start with that. But this, the un, unpalatable fact to me, and I am an anti-Stalinist leftist, I've spent years studying, to, to the outrage of some sort of mainstream commentators, I know too much about Soviet economics, one person said in, in a review of one of my books. Well, the reason I've spent years studying that is because I know how badly centralised planning can, can go wrong. But I actually think that to decarbonise the energy production system, we may have to return to, to quite drastic state ownership and centralisation. So, so hold on a sec, you have got a radical critique of central state planning, but you're calm about a Corbynite takeover of the utilities and presumably the national grid, the latest um, kind of insanity yep. they're promoting. And uh, you're also prepared to see uh, a, a state-led program of um, intervention in the energy and therefore yes. the transport and, and many yeah, other and, industrial sectors. And then what... If the state can signal long term, and the challenge for people like me is to not simply convince myself and some lefty people, but to convince centrists and, and conservatives as well, so that businesses can take a, a long term bet on a 30 year sort of prospect. If we can establish a consensus that this is needed, then that's where the market kicks in. The market but isn't is it more likely, Paul, that business will be reeling from the expropriation and economic change that have been unleashed deeply sceptical about uh, a Labour government that does that and actually worried about the short-termism and the rent-seeking in terms of paying off uh, uh, other contributors and supporters um, implied by that kind of centralised state control. It will, and I think that is why so many of the elites, in, a, in fear of what has to happen, what do they do? Two things. They deny climate science. I've met so many people, both in leadership roles and in, and in foot soldier roles in the Trump movement, who they have to deny climate science because if it's right, their world is ended. They're in, you know, the, the whole schlumberger to big oil to big... Uh, big gas fracking, it's gone. Um, no, it's not me, but it's the, it's in addition to me, it's, it's Mark Carney, our central banker, who in, in the governor of the Bank of England, who's repeatedly warned the, the finance industry that, it, that its assets, that the assets are more and more uh, subject to the risks arising from 
climate change. Right. That, I look forward to hearing Mark Carney's response to being thought of as a radical well, post-humanist. No, uh, he's, he's certainly not a post-humanist. I don't know whether he's a post-humanist, and I'm not. But what, what Carney says is that what everybody else, what, what, what the decarbonisation lobby has said, four right. trillion worth of assets are currently invested in fossil-burning uh, industries. Um, either they burn the fossil fuel and the planet... Uh, spirals out of control in terms of its climate or we don't burn it and those uh those assets are stranded and this, th- that the word stranded is carney's uh carney's uh term and the bank but, of england but, but, is no- by the same token what you're illustrating is that you know if mark carney can see that there's a very serious problem here and of course that view is very widely shared across politics across all the political parties and in the civil service and in many of the um, supportive organisations around government and in the private sector, then it isn't really a problem with the elites because those people in many cases are what you would describe as the elites. Um, the problem's got to be elsewhere. Look, I think um, Britain certainly has, in this sense, still a liberal elite that is trying to solve the problem technocratically through market, through a controlled market, you know, ca- carbon cap and trade. Sure. And it, is, it remains a signatory to the Paris Climate Accord. It just, it just so ha- happens to be the problem that 30% of people in our country are voting for a party that, that doesn't believe in climate change. Uh, and that, that's a threat to your party, it's a threat to me. But America is much for, and I would argue Brazil, is much further down the route of where, where the actual ruling elite of America, Trump and his uh, entourage, have based their entire project on preventing, I would say, a rational, even for a conservative, a rational response to climate change. <laughs> and, and I think that Look, you go back to I see what you did there. Yeah, the, no, the no. mixture. The mixture for me is, of course, uh, competition rules, expropriation, and the creation. Yes, expropriation. No, 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 none of these things is, in any sense, as I would describe, at least conservative um, conservatism being about the creation and the protection of property rights, including and especially for the least well-off. But let me. Can we just pause on that highly modern and political moment yeah. and just? For, this is an Intelligence Squared podcast, after all, give them a bit more in a different direction. And say, look, if you've got this overarching theory, as you're articulating, um, uh, you know, of general interest, even if people don't agree with it, um, then can we just spool back to what the source of this is? Did you Do you see this as coming out of the French Revolution, the late 18th century? Because... If you do, what's really striking about this is which enlightenment are you talking about? Mm. Are you talking about a humanistic enlightenment or are you talking about a scientifically uh, led enlightenment? And if you're thinking of the latter, then science is not your friend. Science is the friend of an awful lot of these state-first, communist or far-right influenced um, eugenicists or indeed far-left influenced eugenicists. I mean, that's coming out of distorted conceptions or sometimes less than distorted conceptions of science? Look, I think that the answer is for me, uh, my fear is we could lose the Enlightenment. You know, before we start segmenting it into its, into its, uh, into its phases and, it, and its subsets, we could lose it all. And, and why, you know, because the Enlightenment came out of a mixture of cultures, it came out of it came out of the rise of a bourgeois society, so out of the society of the Dutch flight, the the, yes. the, the ship that can reach um, can, that can re, that can reach South America, and of exchange in the Dutch Republic and Shakespeare's England comes a society that wants science. That's the first thing, uh, and it wants 
to use political thought and logic in a way that that you, that that helps us to, to to deploy science. I my concern is we could lose that first of all because there is a rising disbelief in 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 it, and I think that the parts of the the political and social elite in the West have decided to use attacks on science and truth as a way to further their... But, but hold on a second. But, hold on but, to but, further your, their but your view, your anti-elite rhetoric is fueling that rejection of science and rejection of reason, though, well, isn't I, it? I, I can't see how it is because, the, the, for me, Trump is, the, Trump is the, the ruling section of the elite. He is encouraging anti-science. Um, his followers everywhere are encur- encouraging attacks on, on the, the, all the sources of, of very Verifiable truth, you know, bookshops being attacked by far right people, uh, universities being continually undermined by attempts to um, to challenge the culture of peer review and verifiability, and the, the mainstream media constantly these, being called attacks, the enemy within. Okay, but isn't there an, an alternative strand which actually locates those attacks in Foucault and in Marx and says actually all these attempts at verification and truth are really just uh, coverings for different forms of expression of power, be it the power of class or the power of men over women or the power of some okay. societies over others. You can't get away from that, though, can you, well, you, you can't. The difference between Foucault and Marx, and Foucault, I think, is the best postmodernist, but between postmodernism and Marx, Marx believes in a verifiable world. Marx believes in the scientific method. Um, Marx believes humanity has a teleological outcome. Uh, the postmodernists believe none of this. No, there is a postmodernist Marxism. Indeed, there is an anti-humanist Marxism. I think that, that those of I'm sure this is not your mastermind specialist subject. But those who, who do <laughs> we're already underst- drowning in isms, uh, Paul. Uh, I think uh, those uh, those who do understand the, the 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 genesis of anti-humanist Marxism understand it, how it, how easily it fit onto justifications of Mao's China and Soviet Russia. So, yes, there is that. And one of the reasons for writing a book about left politics and agency is to is to state openly, as I do in the book, as E.P. Thompson, uh, the English Marxist, did in the 1970s, there are two Marxisms and, and they're incompatible. There's one based on human freedom and, and teleology. There's another which basically says history is a process without a subject, i.e. a machine, in which human agency has no basis. And I, I, one of the reasons I have to fight that is because that is the Marxism being learned uh, by many people who do want to change the world. And, and I... I think, as I said before, Marx is no longer irrelevant. When people march through towns to defeat him and when the president of China um, represses the rights of uh, the Uyghur population or wider sections of, of, of young people in the name of Marx, it is, it is obligatory for anybody who wants a left politics to spell out what is savable from Marx. And that's one of the reasons I did that. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had a lot of isms in this conversation. It's ranged very widely, and Paul Mason has given us a Marxism of a modern kind purged of Marx's belief in mechanism and uh, system in a way, and also of um, his kind of uh, latent, in that sense, anti-humanism. But what an intellectually interesting and diverse conversation. His book is in the bookshops now. It's called Clear, Bright Future, A Radical Defense of the Human Being. Uh, thank you very much, Paul. A pleasure.